0: welcome back to behind the wings a podcast produced by wings over the rockies air and space museum in beautiful denver colorado we've got a lot to explore stories about how history shapes aviation today trailblazers in space up close looks at iconic aircraft and on today's show the world's first astronomers it's time to go behind the wings well we've made it to episode 29 and we are so glad to have you along for the ride now make sure you subscribe wherever you listen and if you like the show leave us a rating it's the best way for new people to discover us and we really do appreciate it Okay, we are excited to bring you a cosmic episode today that is sure to turn your world upside down. I'm your host, Rick Grandle, and with me is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. John, what do we have for folks today?
1: So today's episode will dive into the history of some of the world's first astronomers, exploring how their knowledge has been passed down for generations. We're going to the Southern Hemisphere to learn about Australia's indigenous astronomy and the impact it has on our world today. Join us as we explore the culture and stories of Australia's indigenous people, why dark skies are important, and how issues like light pollution threaten the very field of astronomy itself. Our guest today is Peter
0: Swanton, Peter is a Gamalari man from Mackay, Queensland, an astrophysics graduate and cultural astronomer. He's actively involved in indigenous astronomy, outreach, and research, and has a passion for the challenging yet critical subject of dark sky preservation. Peter will highlight the scientific importance of indigenous star knowledge, the challenges and opportunities in preserving that history, as well as preserving the night sky itself. There is a lot to learn in this episode, folks. Get ready as we explore the night sky from down under. Let's get started. Peter Swanton. Welcome to the show. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, my friend, we have been excited about this episode for a while, and it's a pleasure having you here with us from down under. To start off, how about introducing yourself and letting us know how you first got interested in astronomy?
2: Thanks for having me. This is a, a wonderful part of the work that I get to do is,
0: is sharing it with people uh, all around the world. Yes, yeah, so my name
2: is Peter Swanton. Uh, I'm a Gamilaroi man, uh, so a First Nations man whose country is sort of northern New South Wales here in Australia. And I originally got into astronomy through a first year physics teacher at university. So I avoided physics in high school because people told me physics was hard. <laughs> Don't do physics. Um, but as it turns out, I'm really good at physics. Uh, and so he was really passionate about physics but also really passionate about his students and education's always been a huge thing for me, particularly when it comes to young Indigenous students here in Australia. And I really resonated with him. And so he was doing his master's in astronomy and astrophysics. And so I was like, I want to be like him. So I'm going to do astronomy and astrophysics as well. So that's how I got into it.
1: Before we get into finer details of Australian Indigenous astronomy, what does it mean to be a cultural astronomer? How does it compare to other ways that people study astronomy?
2: Cultural astronomy is looking at the way in which we've looked at the stars and, and our place within the universe for you know over 65,000 years here in Australia. For me, I'm trying to sort of bring my unique background to that. So I have my cultural background uh, as a Gamilla Roman, but I also have a, an academic background that's in the physical sciences. So my undergrad was in physics. And in astronomy and astrophysics and so now i'm trying to be the bridge between those two worlds and those two knowledge systems and sort of bring them together and find ways in which those two knowledge systems so the western science uh, as well as the indigenous science knowledge systems can actually communicate and sort of give us a more rich and, and fuller picture and understanding of where we are in the universe
0: The first peoples of Australia have been using the sky and astronomy as a tool for over 65,000 years, you mentioned, uh, making them some of the first astronomers in the world. Not only did they find practical use for the sun and the moon and the stars, but the night sky also served as the foundation and inspiration for narratives that have been passed down through song and dance and oral tradition. For people who are new to this topic, and that would probably include a lot of us up here listening, help us introduce Indigenous astronomy in Australia. Why is it so important culturally and practically?
2: You mentioned it there in that it's very important to our songs and our and our oral stories, right? And that's for us the, the sort of the basis of Indigenous knowledges as a whole. So we didn't have a written language. Uh, we only had spoken word. And so... You can think of a lot of these stories and song lines and that that we talk about as the same way that we think about textbooks in a classroom these days. So the textbooks have all of that information that people before you have figured out and they've thought that that's the important stuff that the next learners of that subject need to know. And so that's how we treat our songs and our stories is that's how we store our information. And so if we find something that's important, be it about animal behaviors or seasons or weather or other things like navigation, we put that into our stories and we store that in our stories so that we can pass that story and that information on to the next generation.
0: We're naturally curious as humans and we were drawn to the skies out of that curiosity, probably those very first indigenous people, right? All of a sudden it went from the sun to the moon and the stars and, and it would only be natural.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You see it in in cultures not only here in Australia but all around the world, right? They all have some sort of basis of, of astronomy and storytelling that's at the at the very crux of, of what exists, you know. Be it um, through everyday means, through things like you know animal behaviors and stuff like that, or even through the telling of children's stories and how often they have ties to to the sky. So there, there's always a mystic about the universe, and it's the same for all of us, right? It's it's all about wanting to understand our place in the universe and why we're here and, and what's it, what it's all about.
1: Let's uh, discuss the differences between Western and Australian indigenous people. So being on opposite hemispheres, indigenous people of North America would have looked up and seen different stars in the northern sky from those of Australia who are viewing in the southern sky. Yet, By using the stars, both cultures created stories and explanations about how the world works. Are there any similarities between how American and Australian indigenous people view the cosmos? And what are the biggest differences in what stars you can see based on geography?
2: It's a really interesting question. And, um, and there's a lot of differences, but there are a lot of similarities as well. So, you know, a lot of the, the classical constellations that you know of, of the zodiac, they're all viewable from both the northern and southern hemisphere. So they're in uh, what we call the ecliptic which is basically just the plane of the that the sun takes across the sky each day. Uh, and so all of the constellations of the Zodiac are actually in that. They will be different orientations. So the way you see it in North America will actually be upside down compared to how we see it in the Southern Hemisphere. And so there's some differences in the way that we look at them, but the the stars themselves are actually the same stars. And the classic one is Orion, which in Australia we actually call the big saucepan, because it's sort of upside down, and so it looks like the three stars of Orion's belt is like the fire under the saucepan, and then Orion's sort of scabbard of his sword is the handle of the saucepan, so the Milky Way is another one. The features are a lot more prominent here in the Southern Hemisphere, because it gets a little higher in the sky, a little bit further away from the horizon, so it's a lot easier to see some of those features.
1: So constellations uh, form the basis of many important aspects of indigenous culture and lore. Constellation and clusters such as the Emu and the Sky and Seven Sisters were some of the prominent features that came up in our research. Can you tell us more about those constellations? Why are they important?
2: They each serve different purposes. So there's actually about 273 different language groups in Australia, Gamilaro being just one of those 273, but they each had their own different stories and constellations that are important to them but the emu is actually quite common Uh, not universal by any means but we see it right from you know here in new south wales right up to the northern territory right across the western australia all these different groups that have that emu constellation and it's really highlights an important aspect which is this idea of interconnectedness the saying is that everything that's in the sky is reflected here on earth so we then use what we see in the sky to tell us what's happening here on earth And the emu is the the classic example of that. Because based on what we see the emu doing in the sky, we can understand the emu behaviours here on Earth. We look at uh, sort of the emu in April here in the Southern Hemisphere as the Milky Way stretched across the nighttime sky. It looks like an emu running, an emu in full sprint. So what that signified to us was the female emu chasing the male emu. So that's how we knew it was the emu breeding season. So we could go out and we could hunt the emu eggs as a source of food. And then as we move around the sun, the orientation of the emu changes and so does the emu behaviours. And we can then learn new things from the emu throughout the year based on what it's doing in the sky. You mentioned the Pleiades, right? Like that's universal across the globe. So one of my favourite examples is the car manufacturer Subaru, right? Um, Have you seen the symbol on the front of a Subaru? It's a group of stars. And that's actually the Pallades cluster. So the Japanese word for the Pallades is Subaru. And so they have a story within their culture that goes back thousands of years. And it's actually very closely related to some of the stories that we see uh, here in Australia as well, which is really cool.
0: I was just beside a Subaru a couple of hours ago, here in Colorado, uh, Subaru is quite popular with our mountains and, with you know, with the terrain we have here. And you know, it's just, now I'm going to be looking at Subarus every time I'm at a stoplight. Now let's turn our attention to one of the most prominent stars in the sky and in culture, Polaris, also known as the North Star and the Big Dipper. They both play a very important role for North American indigenous people as the brightest and easiest star to spot in the night sky with the naked eye, tribes in North America noticed that it stays in one place throughout the night. And for many tribes, it was considered the center of the cosmos and endless stories and lore about it were passed down through generations. I'm curious, is there a constellation or star that would represent similar significance to Australian indigenous people?
2: We're not lucky enough here in the in the southern hemisphere to have one that stays still like that. The North Star, being unique because it sits on that uh, what's called the North Celestial Pole. So that's the the axis of rotation of the Earth, and so that's what causes all the stars in the sky to rotate throughout the night. And so Polaris is is really unique in that it sits right on that point of rotation, so it never actually moves. But you can actually use one of the most iconic southern objects to find the south celestial pole and that's the southern cross so the one that's on the australian flag and it's always visible uh here in the southern hemisphere and you can actually use the properties of that along with what the two other stars that are quite commonly associated called the pointer stars to actually find the celestial south pole given their orientation using uh, a simple application of the thing you probably learned in high school that you never thought you'd use, geometry. <laughs> um, a simple application of that, and you can actually find Celestial South using the Southern Cross. Uh, and it's, it's quite a fundamental constellation uh, within a lot of uh, Indigenous astronomy here in Australia as well.
0: It was pretty important to the Indigenous people, the Southern Cross, right? And maybe you could get into that importance for us just a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to tell the the story of the Southern Cross for the for the Gamilaroi people uh, in particular. So for us, it's what we call a creation story. So creation stories are, are some of our most fundamental stories. So they tell us about the, the physical existence of some things, again, as well as store some important information. And so the story of the Southern Cross, which in Gamilaroi is called Yaran. Yaran is also our word for the red gum tree. And so it's actually the story of the first person to die on Earth. So in the beginning... Uh, There were three people that lived on the earth, so there was two men and a woman, and they were shown how to live off the earth. So they were shown the trees that would provide them with the food that they needed, the watering holes that would provide them with the water, and everything else that they needed in order to get by. But as the years went on, the earth began to change. Those watering holes dried up, and the trees stopped providing the food that they needed. And it got to the point where one of the men and the woman, they were so desperate, and they seen this wallaby hopping by. And they said, I want to kill and eat that wallaby, I'm so desperate for food. But the third man goes, you can't do that. The wallaby is our totem, we don't eat our totems. But the first man and the woman, they were so desperate that they killed and they ate the wallaby. And this caused a lot of distress for the third man. And so he ran. And he ran and he ran until he couldn't run anymore. And he fell at the base of the Yarum, the red gum tree. And there was a spirit that lived within the tree, that saw that the man had done the right thing. That he hadn't eaten his totem. So he opened up the trunk of the tree... And he took in the man's body and he took the tree up into the sky. And as the tree faded into the background, all that were left were the eyes of the spirit and the eyes of the man, which make up the four main stars of the Southern Cross constellation.
0: That is cool. Thank you for sharing that story with us. That was beautiful.
1: Well, that brings us to the subject of uh, navigation. Now, you know, while the first uh, nations of Australia would have navigated mostly during the day with landmarks the the stars were still important in making sure you stayed on the right path at night. Now, can you tell us how exactly the stars help with navigating and how they could even provide cardinal directions?
2: The function of the stars as a navigational tool depends heavily on on where you are because uh, obviously things in Australia vary much differently depending on your location we've got a You know, everything from the central deserts of Australia right to the coasts and and even the the island nations of the Torres Strait Islands um, in the north. And so if you're traveling by land, which we did, uh, you know, as Gamilaroi, as as a landlocked nation, you actually didn't do a lot of travel at night. Uh, You mainly only traveled during the day. But obviously, if you're, you know, up in the Torres Strait Islands and you're navigating by sea, sometimes you're out there and there are no features on the land, right? You're out on the ocean. You can't see anything. And so those are the really fundamental ones where they need to use the stars themselves to understand what they mean and where they are at certain times of the year, Um, because if you don't understand that, then you're going to miss the island and and be completely lost out at sea, right, so... It depends on, on where you are, um, but the star charts that they use in Torres Strait Islander astronomy and even in like a lot of Maori and, and Pacific Island astronomy are really cool features and they actually can make physical maps which actually are very similar to the maps that we use today, but they're maps of the stars and how they use those to navigate across oceans, which is just mind-blowing
1: to me. Before modern-day technology, history, routes, and knowledge used to be passed down via oral stories. One way the First Nations passed down knowledge of paths and navigation was through songlines. Can you tell us what exactly songlines are and how they helped indigenous people move across Australia? Songlines
2: are what we call these large-scale navigational tools. So you would remember that songline, which would be referring to a star or, or a set of stars in the night sky, which would then map to some features here on the land that you would then use. And so you might have a star, a set of constellations, which represents a river. And so that lets you know, you know, how to follow along the river. So you would tell the story that's associated. Um, So basically you would use a song line to get from your country to someone else's country. The largest and one of the most well-known song lines is called the Seven Sisters song line, uh, which relates to the Pallades, as we spoke about earlier. And it actually stretches right from the west coast of Australia, right across to the east coast of Australia. And so each of those countries actually has their own version of the Seven Sisters songline, and that's the bit that they're responsible for as you're moving across their country. And there's a version of it uh, from the Kakatha people in South Australia, which is one of my favorite stories to tell um, of the Pallades. Because for me, it demonstrates one of the fundamental things that I talk about, because it talks about an object that we study in Western science called variable stars. And so variable stars are simply stars that vary their brightness quite significantly um, over relatively short periods of time. This story uses the Pallades again. This is also the story of a fearsome hunter named Naruna. Now Naruna was a fearsome hunter, but he wasn't a very good man. Uh, One day he decides he wants to go out and he wants to marry one of the sisters, but not being a very good man, the sisters, they don't want anything to do with him. So he decides he's gonna have to go out and try and trick one of them into marrying him. So he goes out each night and he lays out traps and food to try and trick one of the girls into his traps and trap them into marrying him. But the sisters, they're much more cleverer than he is, and they would never fall for any of his silly traps. And it gets to the point where the eldest sister, Kambugata, she's had enough. She doesn't think that he's this fearsome hunter, as he so claims. She thinks he's a bit of a coward. So she places herself between the sisters and Nairuna, and she begins to taunt Nairuna and won't let him get past, won't let him get to her sisters. And to further try and humiliate him, she puts out a line of dingo puppies... ...which is represented by the shield of stars from, like, a Rhine shield. And the fact that they're dingo puppies is meant to humiliate him... ...because why would dingo puppies be any sort of problem for a fearsome hunter such as Noruna? And of course, this does anger him. And in his anger, he raises his club, which is filled with fire magic. And that's represented by a bright red star we call Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is one of these bright red variable stars... And so as he begins to anger, Beetlejuice begins to flare up and get much, much brighter. But Ken Bugata has fire magic of her own, represented by a bright red star we call Aldebaran. And she begins to return fire. And of course, being the coward that he is, Naruna then begins to retreat. And as he retreats, his fire magic wanes as Beetlejuice begins to get much, much dimmer. But soon after, his lust returns and his anger returns once more as he raises his club again. And Beetlejuice begins to flare up and get much, much brighter. But this time, Ken Bugata calls on the father of the dingo puppies, Bubba. And Bubba comes in and starts tearing away at the midsection of Nairuna. And we see a twinkling of the stars within the Pleiades, the Ugarilla, uh, as the sisters laugh at the humiliation of Nairuna. Now that's a really cool story, it's one of my favourites, and it really hammers home some of the features that we have from our stories and that is we try to instill values within our children as we're telling the stories as well so you know it tells us the ways in which we should and shouldn't treat women within our society uh, but also bravery in standing up for your siblings particularly your younger siblings as the elder sister did Um, but as an astrophysicist the really cool thing is talking about the variability in stars like Betelgeuse which are in my opinion uh, the most exciting object in the Milky Way
1: You're an incredible storyteller, which is uh, also part of your strengths, there's no doubt about that. Now, Peter, before the advent of electricity and thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth, the night sky was lit up with millions of stars. Now, however, with light pollution very quickly endangering many aspects of life on Earth, you and several other organizations are frankly worried about the endangerment of dark skies. Can you tell us why light pollution is a risk and why keeping dark skies is important, not just to indigenous astronomy, but really to the world as a whole? This actually touches
2: on another area of work that I work on. And there is fundamentally a difference in the way in which we see the skies now versus even as recent as like 50 years ago. And it's got to do with the way that we build our cities. Our cities are getting bigger. You know, we're building more lights and and just a lot more pollution um, and i like to use australia as an example for the milky way galaxy itself so only about two to five percent of australia's population actually live in an area where you can see the milky way from your backyard and so that's got to do with the fact that about 95 to 98 percent of our population is centered in our big cities like sydney and melbourne where there's just too much light pollution to see the milky way despite the fact that probably 95 percent of our massive continent is dark enough to see the milky way that's not where our population is centered and so fundamentally it is harder to look up and see the things you know that perhaps you know our parents and grandparents saw when when they were kids growing up right so it's quite easy to see how it's a problem for cultural astronomy it's quite easy to to see how it's a problem for astronomy as a whole we we see the problems all the time you know starlink from spacex and and the controversy that it's causing in the astronomy community with people astronomers all around the world showing images of Satellites coming up in their observations, but it is a fundamental human problem as well. Uh, so there are huge environmental impacts that happen with light pollution as well. So they're finding that now that a lot of migratory species of birds are affected by light pollution, and what they're finding now is they're actually migrating either too early or too late in the season, and so they're actually missing breeding seasons, which is having adverse effects on populations Uh, they did population studies in florida actually on sea turtles and so when sea turtles are born they're born on the beach and so they actually use the sun setting over the horizon to actually as a guide to get them back to the ocean and so what they're finding now is that the light domes from cities on the horizon in the wrong direction is actually drawing sea turtles away from the ocean when they're looking for the light dome of the sun setting over the ocean to get back to, to get back home, and that actually causes the death of about a hundred thousand sea turtles a year in Florida alone, which is just a huge impact on on the population and the and the longevity um, of the of species like that. So environmental problems are huge. Uh, the impact on human health uh, is actually a problem. So what we're finding at the moment is that our eyes are actually aging quicker than the rest of our bodies, and that's got to do with the overexposure to blue light and the The effect that blue wavelengths of light have uh, on our optical nerves and and we're finding that, yeah, our eyes are just aging quicker than the rest of us. But, yeah, everything and, and everyone are affected by it.
0: How have the techniques of indigenous people's astronomy been used in the development of the advances in telescope technology?
2: There has been some work using indigenous astronomy to help us locate Areas that might be interesting to follow up with these million and billion dollar telescopes that we're now building. Uh, and one of those is actually in supernova research. And so in a galaxy like the Milky Way, we would expect a supernova to go off about every 100 years. Uh, the last supernova to go off in the Milky Way was in 1604. So we're about three to 400 years overdue for a supernova. What we're finding is that ancient observations of supernova can actually tell us where to look in the sky to find supernova remnants. And one example of that is a supernova called SN393. Uh, So SN393 was actually discovered by ancient Chinese astronomers within their uh, astronomical traditions. So it was recorded by their astronomers. And then in the late 90s, early 2000s, Chinese astronomers actually did a follow-up based on the observations of their astronomers from 1600 years in the past. And they actually found the remnants of SN393 based on the descriptions of their astronomers.
0: So at a site in Victoria is Wurdy Yuang, a a stone ring about 50 meters across, often dubbed as the Aboriginal Stonehenge. This rock formation may actually be older than its uh, Wiltshire counterpart. Can you tell us about the site
2: it's an interesting site, wordy Ewing. So they have dated it about 10 to 12,000 years old, which is about seven to 8,000 years older than Stonehenge. And so you can think of the rock formation as almost like a tier shape. So you can imagine sitting at the tip of the tier and then you've got just these two stone things that go around and they sort of just make a, like a rounding at the end. So you're sort of sitting at the, at the tip of the tier and these two lines go off and they curve around and they meet in the middle. And so what they actually are looking to show is that if you're looking down the right-hand side of the tier from where you're standing, that's actually going to be the uh, winter solstice, the basically the lowest point in the sky that the sun gets. And, and then you, you look down the left-hand side of the tier and you actually find the summer solstice, the highest point in the sky that the sun will set. And then in the middle is virtually where you'll get the, the spring and the autumn equinox. So the, the point in the sky where they're equal and so that's sort of the shape of it so when you're standing at the tip of it you can actually know where the summer and the, and the winter equinoxes are going to be and you can sort of use it as a calendar to know when those events are happening and so you can use it to find the seasons based on where the sun is setting basically
0: so, this has been delightful, but part of your work is teaching younger generations about indigenous astronomy, often visiting classrooms in school. Goes without saying, I'm going to ask you anyway why, why is it important that we continue teaching this history to younger generations? And what, what is that message you share?
2: Yeah, for me, it's about teaching these perspectives, uh, and it's particularly important. Uh, in space as a whole at the moment, because we're basically at the point where we don't need any more scientists or engineers in space. We actually need people that think differently. You know, right now we're looking at problems with space ethics, space law, space medicine, and and all of these other things that aren't traditionally a physics or an engineering-based discipline. We need those people interested in space. And so we're looking for those different perspectives. And I think indigenous knowledge systems... And the way in which we look at land management is a way in which we can look at space management, right? Like space junk, there's about 11,000 satellites in orbit currently, but there could be as much as thirty to 50,000 by the end of the decade. And so we can look at land management practices in, in indigenous knowledge systems as a way of helping informing space management practices in the way that we're doing things there. So that's what I think is the importance of bringing that different perspective to a field that really needs some different thinkers in it at the moment.
1: Now, Peter, as someone with such fast experience in indigenous astronomy, what advice do you have for listeners who are wanting or starting to get into the field of astronomy?
2: So my advice is to just enjoy what you do. So when I did astronomy, it was the first time in my life that I'd done something because it was just what I wanted to do. There was no thing of like, oh, I'm going to go and get this astronomy degree, then I'm going to go and do this, right? Like, you know a lot of people they look like oh I have to go and do a law degree so I can become a lawyer and make money and do all of that it was the first time that I did something just because it was what I wanted to do because I loved physics I love astronomy and I did it and now it's actually the first time in my life where I've actually had a clear path despite the fact that at the start I had no idea that I would lead to anything like this and so yeah you will do better in doing things that you enjoy and if you enjoy astronomy that's all you need. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to be smart to do physics. You've just got to be passionate because it's that passion and that desire to learn that will get you through the hard points, not necessarily the straight up raw gene. If, if you're really good at maths and stuff as like that, that's going to help. It's going to make things a little bit easier. But ultimately, you're going to get to a point, no matter how smart you are, where you're going to come across something that's going to be too difficult. And it's going to be that passion and that drive that's going to get you through and not necessarily your existing sort of smartness.
0: Peter, thank you so much. By the way, is there a way for our audience to learn more or you know, anything you'd like to leave us with before we wrap up?
2: So there is a website. If you Google Aboriginal Astronomy, it's aboriginalastronomy.com.au. There should be a link to me on there somewhere. and be able to learn a little bit more about me, but that's got a lot of the research that's been done, a lot of the stories and, and publications that have been done in that area uh, from many different groups right across Australia.
0: Well, Peter, unfortunately, time's up and we've got to let you go, but it was wonderful. Thank you very, very much for your storytelling, for your time, for managing the clocks between there and here. It was a pleasure being with you today, and we wish you continued success in your research and in your education and in your future. Thanks for having me. Man, what an amazing topic to hear about. Uh, all right, I love this one. There's so many interesting aspects of Australian indigenous astronomy, honestly, that I hadn't even considered. I was particularly interested by the storytelling. I mean, how could you not be? And just how they matched perfectly with the constellations and stars. Beautiful storyteller he is. John, what were your takeaways?
1: Well, you know, in all my navigation training, I'd forgotten that you don't use the North Star in the Southern Hemisphere to navigate, which is a reminder to me, particularly as a pilot, but also the fact that I go back to what you mentioned about the stories. I mean, looking at the skies and being developing the idea of how, one, to navigate, but also to pass on the lessons learned from different seasons and history of people. I don't think I'm ever going to look at the skies the same way. And I'm really excited about bringing my grandchildren one day and you know, just talking about some of the stories that Peter told, but also let the kids develop their own stories from what they see in this amazing sky of ours.
0: Absolutely, those were great points and and sadly that's gonna do it folks. We hope you've enjoyed episode 29 of the Behind the Wings podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. Keep in mind that this was our penultimate episode, but we're excited to have a special episode for the grand finale to close out season three. Make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and subscribe. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a review. It's the best way to get our show out there, and we greatly appreciate hearing from you. We'll see you next time, right here on Behind the Wings.